You're listening to the Our Eerie Podcast with Marty Wachugu and Lydia Laith. We're here to amplify community voices and bring new perspectives to the conversation. We are unpacking Eerie and America's baggage. And we're speaking truth to power. Let's talk. Hello and welcome back to Our Eerie. You're hearing from Marty Wachuku, one of the hosts. I am a 29-year-old Black American Nigerian woman. Um, today I am wearing a black long sleeve t-shirt with like some type of 90s flash looking thing with um, <laughs> blue, red, yellow, orange, green boxes and a giant T in it. It's a t-shirt I got from a high school classmate back years ago. She started her own clothing at design line and she's still doing it but this is the only thing i own um i have those braids finally out of my hair i had to get it together saturday um night um and sunday sunday i was going to take my boyfriend to meet the family and i still had those ugly old braids in my hair so that night we were up until like 12 taking them out he was helping me taking those braids out so i could wash my hair and so today i have my hair slicked back in a kind of fro thing um in my background i have a blue and yellow tapestry and i'm going to pass it over to our host lydia uh yeah thank you this is the beautiful voice of lydia lath i am a 28 year old 28 i think so 28 year old white woman with blonde hair long blonde hair and um a like teal like kind of ombre well i guess it like goes like medium teal light teal gray dark teal um sweater on I have a blue tapestry behind me and um, and I have a bear tattoo that you can kind of see when my sleeves are rolled up a little. So that's that. I will now pass off to our wonderful guest this week, Delena Graysinger. She's going to introduce herself and we'll talk more about how wonderful she is and all the great things she does a little bit later. Thank you, Lydia. Thank you, Marty. Uh, super happy to be here. So, uh, Delina Grasinger, I am, uh, Lydia's way too young to forget how old she is. I will be 46 <laughs> here soon. So, uh, white female, uh, brown hair, definitely some gray. Um, but as I've been told, there's plenty of life left in me. So, you know, get that stuff colored. Um, let's see what I, my eyes are almost black. Um, not brown. And my background, I have uh, Mercy Hall Prince, a local artist, well-known, good friend, a handmade bookshelf from another friend uh, who uh, does woodworking, and a lava lamp, which was uh, my family only gives one Christmas gift and everybody gets the same gifts. And so we got lava lamps two years ago. (laughs) I just got my first lava lamp a few weeks ago. (laughs) <laughs> that's awesome i remember we mesmerizing were, right they're so great I was, we were redecorating benji's room like a couple years ago and i like got a lava lamp he didn't ask for it but i was like i like i basically decorated his room the way i would have wanted my childhood room to be so like he got like cool twinkle lights a lava lamp like all the cool like glow-in-the-dark stars so Aww. gotta respect a good lava lamp that's for sure well, before we jump into our conversation today, I'm bringing back something we did last week, and maybe it'll become a re- reoccurring thing. Yeah. Um, as you know, I own a book called 3001 Questions All About Me. And last week, we answered the question, what does it mean or what is the best part of being human? Mm-hmm. This week's question is question 1695. What is the formula to success? And is there is there one? So we're going to go around and answer that. And let's start with our guest this week. Oh, guest first. Uh, uh, 
I, I would have to say in my own experience, failure. Ooh. Um, you know, uh, I think you only grow when things are uncomfortable, at least for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and failing definitely is lesson learned. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's really where you, you know, eventually achieve success. So not always pleasant, but um, yeah, that yeah. would be my answer. Ooh, I love that. Ooh, okay. That totally changes my answer too. Because at, at first, <laughs> <laughs> do, Marty, do you mind if I go next? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So when you first asked that question, I was like, there's no formula for success. Like it happened so many different ways, which like I think is still, there's some truth to that. But now, Delena, that you said that, I think you're so like the failure or just like discomfort. I really like that. Like there has to be some form of discomfort. Um, for there to be change and that like for growth, like you kind of, you know, like they talk about like growing pains as like you get older or like, like there just has to be discomfort if, if everything's too easy. And if you've never had to experience any sort of, of struggle or not even just struggle, but discomfort, right? Like putting yourself in a position where like, maybe you're not the smartest person in the room and you do have to listen or you aren't the majority in the room or like, and I think as like three women sitting around this table, like we can attest to like the discomfort that has to come through and like that builds you up and makes you stronger and makes you a better, uh, communicator or a better leader. Um, and so I think I would say that there are different variables that have to be added in for everyone's situation, but that discomfort I think is huge for success. Oh, I love that. I, I always believe tension is good for growth. You don't grow unless you feel some sort of tension. Um, formula of success. I think for me, it's when I am my most, um, connected to myself and like what I really want and trust that trying something new or experimenting in the way that I want to um I feel that's when I am the closest and most successful it's when I'm trying not to be someone else or do something to impress other people um that's when I'm most successful but what is success for me it's just being content um and effective what does success mean to you oh yeah. What is success? How do you measure success? I feel like if I have to be honest, I feel like sometimes I measure a lot of success by what others have to say. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not, not that I'm dependent on what others have to say to define who I am, but it's the feedback that comes from what I'm doing mm-hmm. on whether it was successful or not. And that doesn't always mean that it's positive feedback, but that people were engaged, Mm -hmm. you know, so I find in leadership roles often, you know, it's not about people necessarily being comfortable with what I'm saying or happy or, you know, really liking it, but it's, did the clients get the service, right? So then that's success, right? And then we all achieved what we're really set out to do, you know, so not always comfortable along the way, but, you know, that's the feedback. So, you know, that, that to me is success. Um, and yeah, we'll talk about a few other things that we, we get into beekeeping. Um, I fail there a lot. So, um, <laughs> success is just getting honey, right? So, right. Uh, How many? So, yeah. so it depends what I'm doing. But. Yeah, for yeah. sure. That's such a good point. Yeah. What about you, Marty? How do you define success? Um, <clears throat> if I am happy, if I feel like I can check things off like, oh, I got this done or I got this done. I like um, looking towards the bigger picture, but just getting things done day to day. Because when I have put in my mind that I need to accomplish this big thing or this thing has to be the best thing that ever happened and it's not that thing, I kick myself hard. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I've learned to embrace the journey of creating, the journey of learning versus um, the final product being mm. amazing or record-breaking or excellent, you know? Um, but yes. that's just how I need to think of things to be okay. Not to yeah. judge, like, people who are like, I have to have four stars all the time, you know? Yeah. No, for sure. I mean, I think that's a really healthy way to look at success, too. Like, looking at, have I progressed in this at all? Even if it's not completing the full task, even if it's not perfect, but, like, have I progressed? Have I learned something? Like, so, like, if I lost a, a swarm of bees, like, did I learn from this? <laughs> did I, you know, like, is is there something that, like, can progress me towards, like, a better end product at the end or, mm -hmm. or in the future? Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Because, yeah, I mean, there's days like today I was telling Buster, like I went to work, I had all these things I needed to do. And I sat on hold with like Penelec and National Fuel and had like three calls come in all at once. And like someone hung up on me like there's chaos, but I got one thing done. So, yeah, I didn't get like four things that I was trying to multitask and do all at the same time. But like I got one thing done and mm -hmm. that was like progress. So I do think that that attitude shift is important. Awesome. Well, this seems like a good time to transition into talking a little bit about what Delena Gracinger does in her day job. What is your new title at the U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigrants Erie Field Office? All right. Sure. All right. So for the past 10 years, I have been the local director of the Erie Office for U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigrants. Uh, in November, we had a transition in staff. So I filled in as the interim for the senior senior director of field offices, which is a more uh, national position that oversees currently um, Erie included seven other offices. Um, uh, the bigger picture, more strategic uh, planning of, of those offices with the local directors. So I'm wearing two hats right now um, until we, till we uh, transition to a new uh, director at the office. So yeah, so the new title is a little, a little lengthy, but yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and we could probably dive into like the issue of, um, oh gosh, and there's a word for this too. I don't know if we've talked about this before, but like when you're good at your job, then you get more tasks and like, it's like this like unfair burden of like, you're so good that then you get more work. And I feel like Delaine is like a picture of this, that like she does so good that she like gets two titles and like she gets more work and it's like, no, wait. <laughs> now listening to you describe your work, I was like 700 offices and then you followed up with I'm balancing two. That was enough for me. That sounds like a lot. <laughs> it sounds like there's a lot on your plate and that's an admirable thing. So I'm looking forward to later on asking you how you manage that and how you take care of yourself, you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and so I think in in bringing you onto the podcast, one um, topic that we had talked about, and I well, we won't dive into like global or like kind of historically what's going on in Ukraine, but we know that there's war going on in Ukraine, and there's been talk of people fleeing Ukraine, going to Poland and other places, and and refugee status and and resettlement. And so I think questions that get probably thrown to you a lot, Delena, is like, when will Erie see refugee, like Ukrainian refugees? And what does that look like? And I'm sure there's a lot of unknowns still going on. But can you give us a little snapshot of like what that could look like for Erie receiving Ukrainian refugees or kind of what that process could look like? Yeah, so I mean, we we just we have a, a pretty robust and active Ukrainian population already here in Erie. Uh, so, you know, seeing Ukrainians come to Erie will 
has been happening and will continue to happen, uh, unfortunately, because of, as you said, the war. Um, what we don't know, so President Biden had announced that 100,000 uh, Ukrainian refugees would, would uh, come to the U.S. The timeline was a little bit vague. I mean, there were some, some years thrown out this year, next year, but really exactly when or how uh, was not described. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what we see is uh, the Erie community uh, who is, you know, historically welcoming and steps up, right, is very eager to, you know, also pitch in and help with this population. But the answers are just, they're just not there. Um, you know, the, the war uh, is changing every day. Um, you know, the, the dynamics of it this morning, I heard on NPR that some folks were, were returning back home, even though it's not safe. Um, you know, and so, you know, I think seeing people travel, we, you know, is going to be a constant unknown until they do. Mm -hmm. um, we know that we do see people who are making it um, to the, the border, um, more towards Tijuana, um, California, that area, uh, who are looking to come up. Uh, with humanitarian parolee as uh, so a humanitarian parolee or temporary protective status. And, you know, I don't want to go into too many details or bore anyone, um, but TPS is, is the most recent status that came out that will allow Ukrainians to stay in the U.S. Uh, if they were, if they entered before April 11th, they'll be able to stay here uh, for a year, which basically gives them protection from having to return home to Ukraine while there's a war. Nice. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And I think um, some people don't even know that Erie is like a refugee resettlement site and that we have like a pretty long history of resettling refugees in Erie. So could you talk a little bit about kind of what in general that process looks like for folks that like once they are displaced and they become a refugee and they come here, like what what do you do or what does USCRI Erie do um, for these folks that get resettled in Erie? Yeah, so the agency is like a, a, a hidden gem. We've been in the community since 1919, so for a very long time. And there's an interesting history there. So International Institutes, which is our where we're better known in the community. Uh, there's International Institute of Akron, of Buffalo, of Erie, of I think it's Los Angeles, right? So they're across the country. So they used to be YWCA's, and they provided immigration services and English classes to um, immigrants that were coming over. So that was really our founding. And then over the years morphed into a few other things and eventually USCRI. But we've been, you know, we, we've been, um, USCRI wasn't around in 1919, really. We, we've been part of that transition and, and moving through that. And they've been part of our network. We've been, we've been them kind of thing, um, taking on both identities. So in 1980 is really when resettlement, um, that's when the Refugee Act came out and we, as a country, recognized resettlement. So we did resettlement before, it was just not a federal program. You know, when you see, you know, um, when we had um, folks coming over, you know, from the Holocaust and fleeing that, um, you know, that, that was resettlement. It was just not a federal program, right? So in 1980, we decided that we would codify the program and actually put funds behind it and decide that this is what we, we do as a country. It really began, uh, you had the boat people who were coming over um, from Laos, and, and that's really where people start to think of resettlements um, in, in many communities, Erie not alone. 
I think the next population that we saw would be the Bosnians mm-hmm. and any sizable number in Erie. Mm-hmm. Um, that was another big resettlement effort. Um, and then I would say Syrians, there was talk of, and then a change of administration put a, you know, a, a big uh, kibosh to that pretty quickly. So those are, I think, some of the bigger groups. The Bhutanese are here. A lot of times folks will say Nepali. Um, they, they are not Nepali, they are actually Bhutanese, um, but that's another sizable group that, that was here in Erie as well, or is in Erie. So. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty incredible. But it's it's interesting because I think people don't realize it because there is so much like um, covert, not covert, I don't, like subtle geographic segregation. Like if you if you live on the east side, you know the east side communities. And maybe I don't need to say I was gonna say is it subtle? Is it subtle? Pretty obvious and and maybe intentional in like historical redlining and which I think we'll talk about with a guest in the future. Um but like people just don't see all these communities. They're not familiar with like the different um like Syrian grocery markets or things like that that like there's such vibrant communities around here that if yeah if you just go from you know Fairview to your job to the mall back to Fairview, like you would never see these people or see these communities because you don't really go to like their you know their neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I don't think that's you know um, most agencies tend to be in lower income areas. So I will say in Erie, um, and I've worked on a couple. I, I've worked in a lot of different states. I was going to say a couple, but that would be a lot. Um, so in Akron, this was similar. Um, you know, really, it, we're fortunate to, to be where we're at, and where people um, are have access to our agency. It, it, it's a huge benefit. Um, and it's, it, I think it's a huge benefit to the, the East side community. I mean, there are storefronts that pop up. There are people, you know, that are taking care of properties, things like that, that, that maybe wouldn't be happening otherwise. It's not a perfect system, um, you know, but it is, I think, um, it's, it's a definite benefit to the clients and, and really, I mean, you have the sisters over there now who are really putting a lot of effort into the, the communities. So, you know, you've, in the 10 years I've been there, I've seen a lot of change. Um, it's, it's hard to see just coming in initially, but I have, uh, definitely noticed that. So I would say that's a positive, but you're right. You're not going to see it if you're, you know, just going from point A to point B and, and, and back, you, you wouldn't interact with certain populations, our agency or any of the work that's happening over there. Definitely not. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. One of our first few, I think it might've been our second episode ever. We had Gion, Gison from, he owns the My Way Bar and he talked mm-hmm. a little bit yep. about his experience coming over to America and what it was like to um, be a young adult living in the um, refugee settlement. Um, mm-hmm. And I have a question for you regarding, and we just talked a little bit about how geographically um, we know that people are kind of segregated in this community and like if you don't go or work with certain groups of people you're not going to realize how vibrant our community is um and we take for granted how easy it is when you grow up in america um being able to go to the grocery store or pay your bills or your mom to sign you up to go to school um and as a immigrant myself my parents um are bilingual and they grew up speaking english so when they came over here they didn't have um, some of the difficulties that different people who come over here have. But I know still um, learning how this country works when you've grown up in a different place is still something to adjust to, even if you've been here for decades. So all that being me preparing for this next question, 
Um, you've been the your organization has been here since 1919 and seen a lot of conflicts. And obviously, there's been lots of people who've come into Erie and had to adjust to living here in America. So, like, what do you all do at your place of work to help people adjust, especially people adjusting from um, crisis um, and learning to live in a new country with different norms and rules and issues? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so let me, so this has been a really a hot topic with um, working with Afghans and really what that has meant um, to local communities. You know, what What is resettlement? How do we do it? You know, how do we do it, you know, successfully to tie back into the first question that you asked to start off the, the, the show? Um, you know, it, in it, because it is a federal program, there are things that we're, we're, we're scripted to do, right? So we have a nice, neat little checklist, and that includes picking people up at the airport, making sure they have safe, affordable housing, um, you know, that they're getting social security cards, you know, seeking employment, going to English classes, you know, these things that we call the core services. And then from there, because none of those are really meant to address any trauma or, you know, challenges that individuals may have, um, we have supportive services where it folds into longer-term case management if individual need, needs it, longer-term employment services if individuals need it. Uh, we're fortunate we have a child care center as well, which can do some unique things with families that maybe other um, agencies cannot. So we're, we're fortunate there. And we also have interpretation and translation support. So again, another opportunity to really help communities in a way that maybe some other offices don't. Um, so we, we really are, um, I don't like that term one-stop shop, but we really are trying to be comprehensive uh, and responsive to what clients need. I really try to design the agency to make sure that the programs we have are in a response to what clients have said they need or want. Mm -hmm. um, it's, not, it's not me just sitting and making decisions because we wouldn't succeed if, if I did that. You know, it has to be the case managers or the clients themselves giving me feedback on what's, where are the gaps, what can we do? You know, so we also have small business programs, which, you know, come away from that case management component. We have an agricultural program, again, coming away from that case management component, um, again, around making sure that we're hitting the client's needs as well as uh, women-supported programming, which, um, you know, we've, we've always had. Um, we've done it in various ways throughout the years, um, but we just started a Women's Connect program, which was targeting Afghan women specifically, and we hope to expand that into other refugee groups um, as we see more arrivals. Yeah. yeah, it really is like so holistic in addressing that. And I can only imagine like, I get overwhelmed sometimes when I have to go from like one person to another. They say, oh, you, you called the wrong, like when I'm calling for myself personally and they say like, oh, you called the wrong number. You have to call this one after I've been on hold for an hour. Like that's upsetting and frustrating and overwhelming for me. And I like am born in the United States, know these systems, can speak English to the person. And then to imagine like how frustrating it would be if like you couldn't come to one office and get like most of your needs met, you know, and you had to go from like, you know, 12 different points, like that would be so overwhelming in a new city that you're not familiar with, with a language barrier, with a cultural barrier. Like, I think there is something, you know, 
about being so kind of comprehensive that just takes one of those burdens away from clients for sure. So you two working <clears throat> with your, with the services that you provide, what would you say? And cause we, on this podcast, Delena, we talk about systems a lot doing your work. What would you say is one of, or some of the things that are some of the most frustrating things about our system that make your work more challenging that, you know, through organizing or just awareness you wish we would start to address? So I would say, you know, federal programs are interesting and, and I think um, well-intentioned. I think that sometimes what you see are, I think people get exposed to poverty that sometimes meets broken systems in ways that, um, and, and work with me here because I'm, I'm, this is in my head, um, that I think sometimes are more jarring than they anticipate. And that could be, you know, a, a new staff member that's hired and not, you know, not really understanding how systems work. It could be a volunteer, it could, you know, community support. And I think those things sometimes hit people in a way that they don't expect. Um, and there can be I think there can be challenges, you know, in, in make, you know, because because people don't really know what poverty looks like, I think in general, you know, it, I think we talk about it a lot, but really what is poverty, right? Um, unless you've lived that or you've been really ingrained with populations through work or family or, you know, something, you know, to really experience that firsthand, you know, I think by and large, um, we, we don't really see those systems and we don't see the challenges that those systems pose on people. And so it's, it's like a perfect collision that sometimes I think is tricky to navigate out of. And, and this could be for clients too. I mean, you know, sometimes we, have, I mean, war is war and it displaces everyone. It doesn't just displace people who are poor, you know? So we saw Syrians who, who, came, who lost a lot, who, you know, had businesses and houses and, you know, and, and they're resettled into poverty, you know, and, and that's, that's enough, you know, again, it's, it's, it's where your systems meet and people don't, may not have experience with those things on either side of the coin. And it's really making sure that we can help people navigate that, whoever that is, whoever's having that experience, whether it's a volunteer that's kind of in shock, again, a staff member coming in who thinks they're well-trained or, you know, and then kind of caught off guard. We see that a lot in the medical field, you know, where people get, whoa, like this is happening. This is wrong. Right. Um, or clients um, and really helping them because people have a perception of what America is. Um, and we hear this a lot from refugees of what America is. And then when you get here, America may look very different than what you had in your head. Wow. I, yeah, that's, that's bothersome to hear, but I know it to be true. <clears throat> I can speak not from personal experience, and not to say that my family was in poverty, poverty, but um, my my parents, when they were in Nigeria, they had degrees and worked as teachers. But when they came over here, those degrees are not um, applicable. Even though they they've done, they worked in the field, had the education. Our country does not equally credit immigrants and refugees from place certain places in the world. Um, 
to be able to come here and jump back into a life that they once had. And for us to, I don't know that we actively advertise ourselves as Americans, like, oh, come to this place. But for us to advertise, like, this is a great place to come. And then for people to come and experience differently and to go straight to poverty, it's sickening to hear. It's sickening. And to think we're supposed to be the safe space for people to come and then suffer more, I just, I can't. But I'm glad that people like you and your organization whether it's federally funded, locally funding, whatever, are here to help people, you know, I just. Yeah, and I think, you know, if I can just build off of that, I mean, I think that resettlement agencies are really, um, you know, the, the mission is just that, you know, is really, you know, working with the most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I would say, by and large, as a network of, of resettlement agencies across the country, I think that there really is a positive impact that resettlement agencies play and really, um, you know, in eerie, highlighting, you know, what refugees bring to the table and, you know, showcasing that. So, you know, I think kudos to my staff um, and the clients, you know, for really putting in that hard work and, and, and making sure that those, you know, that, that individuals are persevering that, you know, if you were a small business owner, right, we can help you do that again. Um, you know, that if you have trauma, we, we can help you work through that, that, that we're really trying to, to get people back into paths that are familiar to them um, or on the track that they feel maybe might want to be new. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe the university wasn't an option uh, where they came from. Now it is, you know, we're seeing this with some Afghan women, right. Um, And, and helping that path move forward. So, you know, I really think that um, that is the upside. And that is why, I mean, I've been doing this for 23 ish years or so. So been around for a long time. Um, and I stick with it because it is that is that it is that local impact. It is, you know, really, you know, helping people achieve their goals that, that, um, you know, we talk about success, I guess that's a success for me. So. Yeah. Oh, I love it. It's such a perfect place. Like, heck yeah. Resettlement agencies rock is such a great place to like end this part of our conversation and transition into something I think is a little bit more fun. So take a break. We'll be right back uh, with Delena and talking about other things she does outside of work, which I think are very exciting and fun. So we'll be right back. Right. You are back with our Erie, with Marty and Lydia and our guest, Delena. Um, So we just talked about some pretty serious and important work that Delena does in the community with USCRI Erie. But now we're going to transition into something a little bit more fun. So uh, I an a blessing that I, uh, because I know Delena a little bit better maybe than the average person on the outside, I know that she loves bulldogs and she raises her own, or like has it be apiary. So uh, Delena, pick your poison. We're going to talk about them both at some point. Do you want to talk about bulldogs or bees? Uh, so why don't we transition nicely? Uh, let's start with bees. So uh, because we talked about Ukraine, uh, yeah. did you know that Ukraine is the fifth largest producer of honey? Ooh, no. no Fun fact. Okay, so there you go. So I'll open with that. Okay, good. Yeah. So how did you get involved in, uh, and I don't even know, like raising bees, keeping bees? Oh, beekeeping. Keeping bees? Yep. Yeah. Yep. That makes more sense. Okay. How'd you get involved in keeping bees? How did that start? 
so I, you know, honestly, I was always really fascinated by honeybees. Um, they're, they're, they're not aggressive. It, you know, I mean, you go out in, a, in the spring clover, I mean, you can get honeybees to walk on your fingers and whatnot. We used to do this as kids, like, you know, seeing how many we could get. And so, yeah, so it was just always something that was fascinating. It's a little bit of an expense to get involved in. So, you know, there was a, a challenge there, but I decided, you know, one year I was just going to see what it was. Uh, you, t- you know, you take a class, of course, to be responsible and, and figure out how, you know, all the ins and outs. And, and so, yeah, so I took a class and I was fortunate that year to be able to secure, they're called nukes. Um, let's see, how do we describe this? And you can cut me off anytime because I can ramble on about this stuff. Um, so if you think of beekeeping like a filing cabinet, um, each, each cabinet uh, would be, so you get one cabinet and that would be a nuke um, inside are folders, uh-huh. which are your frames. Um, and so though I got two of those and that starts a hive. And so from there, you, you put them into bee boxes. Um, I guess that's where the raising comes in, but the keeping, um, you know, bees can be, you know, you need to be a responsible beekeeper in the sense that you are putting something into a, a natural habitat. And so you need to, to make sure that you're being responsible in that aspect. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where it started 2015, I guess, officially. Nice. Yeah. And then you, you make honey and sell the honey, right? Is that? Yeah. So, um, the bees make it, I don't do anything. <laughs> Well, I'm the responsible beekeeper. Let me take that back. Um, some years. Uh, so, yeah. So, the bees the bees make the honey. I harvest it. Uh, and then, yeah, I turn it into uh, bottled honey products, things like that. Yeah. Um, and it's really word of mouth. Um, a hobby that I try to get to pay for itself kind of thing. Yeah. It's super cool. Can, if someone was interested in looking up your bee apiary, can they find you online anywhere or could they look you up somehow? Yep. I just, um, so kind of made a switch in name. So it's Honey and Paws. Um, so you can find me on Facebook um, and then I have a website. Excellent. Honey and Paws. Honey it. and Paws. Yeah. Um, awesome. What is your favorite honey bee related product that you make? or that you harvest or? Uh, I would say the honey itself. So honey is really interesting and it can change color, flavor, um, depending on what's in bloom at the time. Um, you know, Erie's tricky. So right now we don't think about it, but if you look outside, like the trees are starting to bloom mm-hmm. and that's when bees, you know, are starting to harvest, but it's been too cold and rainy and just, I mean, we had snow today. So, right, so we're missing some of that pollen. If it were warm enough, you would get um, a spring flow, um, kind of June-ish harvest. If you had a good, good healthy hive, that would be lighter, definitely clover, or it could even have some maple hints in it because that's what's being, that's what's in bloom. Yeah. So I always thought that um, you had to infuse that. So just by it being in the environment, it comes into the honey. Yeah, so a misconception that people have is if somebody wants to tell you that, oh, I've got blackberry honey, right? You know, this is, 
So you would have to surround, bees do a three mile circumference to harvest. So you would have to have nothing in the area but blackberries to be blackberry honey. So the only time you really get that is if you have an orchard, which people do. I mean, you, you can take, I mean, people pay for hives to come in to just pollinate. And so you can do that for sure. But really what you get in our area is more of a blend. You're going to get, you know, a, a wildflower blend. Um, it's not going to be just straight clover. It's going to, you know, again, what's in bloom that's, that's around. Um, you may get uh, fall tends to be a little more straightforward because your fall pollen is pretty straightforward and, and all the things that make us sneeze. That's, that's what bees are harvesting. So that one's a little bit easier, but. Well, that's fascinating because we, um, from time to time, talk about our disconnection to where food comes from and not being in touch with our climate and how, like, the little details of how things interwork. And I never thought about, I know honey or bees get pollen from the flowers and go get honey, but until this moment, I never thought about how that pollen or what they take then influences the taste or, like, it being, I never knew that. I don't, I don't, I just am processing my mind being blown right now. You yeah, know? And most people don't think about, honey. I mean, you don't, you know, some people use it, some people don't, or some people, you know, maybe put it in tea and, and you don't think about it often, but um, yeah, I mean, honey is really, it's just this whole wild world that, that can be so many different things. And then as Lydia said, I, you can infuse it. So, you know, I infuse mine with herbs that I've grown in the garden. I try to. Um, so a sage honey, a lavender honey, uh, a hot pepper honey. Mm -hmm. And that's where you actually pick things and put them in and let them, you know, soak up flavors. Oh, they're so good. If anyone is ordering honey from Honey and Paws, oh my gosh. That lap, okay, honestly, I think I still have a little bit because I got like so many different jars, like, and like, Sometimes at like the Christmas party or something, we'll get like a jar of honey or something. But um, I think the only one I have left is hot pepper. But that the lavender honey was gone like in two seconds when I got the lavender. It, I was just like drinking it. It was so good. So, <laughs> but it's, it's supposed to be good for your allergies. So that's just what I tell myself. I justify it by like, I need a spoonful of honey because like it'll help my allergy. There you go. Yeah. Well, we talked a little earlier. I was um, really... Um, when you talked about what you're doing right now at work, I was like, okay, that sounds like a lot. And it's cool to hear you have this really awesome hobby that you get to eat the best hobbies. You get to eat it. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but how do you balance time? Or like, is this part of your self-care routine? What does your self-care routine look like? And like, how are you keeping up with it right now? Yeah. So lately, I think I mentioned earlier, I'm failing. Um, <laughs> yes, normally. And in, in a good year for beekeeping, this is where I... Um, I need a creative outlet. Um, normally at work, creative outlets come around designing programs. Um, I, you know, I really enjoy that, that aspect of it. But I think lately coming out of COVID, um, really seeing an increase in arrivals in a way that, that was new and unprecedented in resettlements, um, that, that, that's transition. So, you know, I put my energy back into what I call the land, um, beekeeping, being outside, um, and those things. So I'm looking forward to this season and, and what it brings. So, um, which is maybe different side note, but I know something that we've talked about at work, um, and that's 
I'm excited about, so I just got chickens as well. So we'll do some chickens, we'll do some bees. Um, yes, and some bulldogs long-term. So. Yes, yes. Oh yeah, we're gonna get to bulldogs in a second, but I also just wanna mention, we've talked about these chickens that she's getting. <laughs> And we've also discovered that chicken diapers are a thing. So if I want to bring a chicken inside and make it a snuggly chicken, which like I'm determined to do, I don't care how long it takes, I'm going to train a chicken to be cuddly. Um, you can put a diaper on a chicken. They sell them at walmart.com and I'm sure other places. So they exist like they exist well enough that like Walmart sells them on their website. Um, I mean, I know that's a thing because my mom had a coworker who had a duck. And the duck would wear a diaper. <laughs> I think it's crazy. It's so nuts. we're not we're not putting the the duck on. We're not putting the diaper. I know. I on know. The chicken. Um, but I think the fun thing is that so um, the comments have been made. Um, so beekeeping, right? It's 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 they're they're females. Uh -huh. It's it's a queen bee that rules the hive. Yeah. The males are only needed for mating and then disposed of. Love it. Um, and then chickens, you don't really need a rooster. I mean, not bashing on men, not at all. Like, don't take that wrong. But I'm like, obviously, I'm gravitating towards something here. So. I love it. I love um, the beef going on here. It's like, yeah. Yeah, we just bring men yeah. around when we need them. But really, like, what's most important is having the women around. Right. I love so, it. Yeah, so I was getting a little, little, uh, yeah, I guess folks picking picking on me at work for that. But <laughs> all, in, all in good fun. So. I love it. I love it. Well, yeah, okay, so let's talk about the final thing that I'm so excited to talk about, which is bulldogs, because Delena, you have like such a huge heart for people and for the community and like just the world as a whole. But I feel like when I've seen your heart at its fullest, when I see like the light in your eyes is when you talk about your bulldogs that you've had over the years and just like your care and compassion for bulldogs. So can you tell us a little bit about why you like specifically support like helping and, and, um, adopting bulldogs and and what that's looked like for you over the years yeah so i um i think i hear the bulldogs coming home so um <laughs> perfect timing <laughs> they knew it uh so yeah i mean i just think that the you know we we have bred dogs to be our companions you know whether you like dogs or not i mean that's what we've decided as humans is that we're going to you know make sure that this animal is our companion and I just think that when you do that, you know, you're, you're, you're dealing with a, a, you know, a vulnerable creature, right? Like you're, you're its caretaker. And so what you see, the reason with bulldogs is because people have really good intention, right? They're so cute and cuddly and we've overbred them to be super wrinkly and, you know, all these little things that we want as puppies and then they grow up and they're super unhealthy right. because we've overbred them to be cute, to look a certain way. Mm -hmm. And usually around three, four, they start to get health issues, uh, skin, you know, maybe some hip breathing for sure. And people then don't want them because they come become way too expensive to take care of. Mm -hmm. And so you've had this, this dog, you know, for three, four years of its life, maybe a little bit longer. And then you're kind of like, oh no, you know, we'll just whatever. So I started looking into rescues, um, decided bulldogs was going to be my thing. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of gone from there. So I usually take the sickly bulldogs. I don't always get the healthy ones. So I've had a couple that have been very sickly and have uh, gotten healthier and happier, but have unfortunately passed just due to lack of, you know, years of 
of not having care. Um, Ox, who I currently have, I got him in about a year. Ox's high anxiety was, I would say, I wouldn't say aggressive, but really just had a lot of fear of a lot of things. It took me a while to work with him to get him adjusted. He's still a wild child, but, um, and then Emmy's my most recent, uh, came across a lady, um, that does special needs bulldogs and connected with her and just followed her page for a few years. Emmy came up through unfortunate circumstances. Her owner had passed and, and, um, the, the rescue did not want to keep her in care for too long, wanted her to go back into a parent home pretty quickly. So I have Emmy. She's got chronic kidney failure, back legs that don't really work. She's incontinent, um, but she's this, probably the sassiest bulldog I've had. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's her. Um, I've got three right now. Um, and then Lenny Briscoe is, Lenny Briscoe is a, a beagle bulldog mix. Um, he was rescued from a puppy mill. Oh. he's the oldest he's not he'll be nine we haven't really yeah. talked about dogs on the show listening to <laughs> you talk about your first dog sounds like my dog my dog is a dutch shepherd i didn't realize that i thought he was a pit bull um german shepherd mix for years um and i love him but over the years like he has all these weird quirks and it's like now i know it's just heathcliff but recently it's like oh heathcliff has high anxiety oh <laughs> <laughs> it sounds crazy but when you have a pet and you live with them all the time because they have personalities, right? Mm -hmm. um, Heathcliff cannot stand to be away from me. If I when I leave him with friends or family, like he'll cry for days. Um, if someone walks by the apartment, he'll go really crazy. And I think now, and I think I've known this for years, but I think that's part of why he ended up in a shelter. Um, yeah. I think people underestimate what it means to take care of any kind of animal, whether it's a dog or a cat or a ferret. And they go and they go to the mall and get these puppies or they go to the shelter and get these dogs and realize it's expensive. They have their own personalities or mental issues. Mm -hmm. um, they have their own health issues and then they end up letting them go or abandoning them. And it's um, it's like a quiet problem. Mm -hmm. you yeah. Know? yeah. Yeah. Rescue. Rescuing is interesting because if you rescue. I mean, you really need to learn what it means to be a, a pack leader. And I didn't know what that meant to be in the beginning, but don't, you know, I mean, you have to be, you have to be the alpha um, because you are in charge of how dogs interact with each other. And, and um, you know, I was fortunate um, to a local trainer who really just kind of taught me um, not, it, not through any formal ways, but just lots of conversation and learning and, you know, pay attention to your dogs, figure out who they are, you know, because yeah, it is weird. And I, 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 never would envision myself talking about animals like this, you know, I mean, growing up, you don't, you know, I don't know my parents, we had dogs, but you know, this is, wasn't how we talked about them. Um, but definitely rescuing, I think is very different, especially with animals who have been maybe neglected mm -hmm. or abused or, you know, or just have challenges, um, like Emmy, you know, it's, it's just a very different, um, world and their mentalities are just very, very different. And bulldogs are funny because bulldogs are wild because they, I mean, ox, you can play with ox and like hold him up by a ball. He's strong enough. I mean, they're, but he's the biggest cuddler and has to be by my side, like has to be by my side. So I've got like 55 pounds on me like every night, like <laughs> snoring away <laughs> beside me. So, oh, you gotta love it. I love it. I like what you said about like 
being the alpha of the pack because I feel like you you reflect that in almost everything that you do like you are the alpha in your like dog pack at home but then you're like alpha in the office and like alpha in like so many of these other spaces you just give off this like vibe of like just being in control and confident and I think that's really cool and it's inspiring as like you know two young women that hope to like be you know voices of change and 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 supporting that and and uplifting other voices to see someone like you in these positions of power um is just inspiring and it's exciting and and I'm just so grateful that you came on this podcast and were willing to like sit down with us and talk about a thousand different things so no I loved it and and honestly you two ladies are are definitely um inspiring so um keep that in the back of your head at all times so um it's it's amazing what you do and that you're putting yourselves out there so yeah thank you thank you well Well, marty you have the final question yep final (laughs) question of the day um delena what makes erie yours is a question we ask every guest who lives in erie or has lived in erie for a significant time what makes it your home what do you love about it how do you put your spin on living in this community? Ooh, um, great question. Uh, so I think, you know, I'm not originally from Erie. Um, home is not that far away. It's roughly two hours. So in the beginning, I think that was, that was a challenge. You know, it's, it, it's easy to go home, right? It was easy to go back home. But I think at some point, you know, pretty early on, there was a shift where I knew that I was going to be here. And I don't know what that shift was, but it was just a a sense that I had. And I let that instinct guide me because I think sometimes we ignore instincts and that can lead us astray. So I, I listened to that and said, you know, this is where I'm going to be. This is where I'm going to put down roots. Um, not that I haven't had roots in other communities, but this is, this is where I'm going to be for kind of a long haul. And I think I just really lived around the, the idea of, I just want the place where I'm going to be to, to, to be the best that it can be. You know, I, I really try to put that into everything that I'm doing, whether it's work or, you know, it's beekeeping and talking to people or, you know, um, bulldogs and rescuing, right. It's just, um, so what makes Erie home? Um, I, it's, I think the fact that I decided to, to claim it and probably more so that people accepted that. So. That's awesome. <laughs> Cause I can claim all I want. It doesn't matter if nobody <laughs> says, okay. <laughs> no, I love it. Well, it was a pleasure meeting you and being in the Yeah, you too. You. you too. This has been great. Yeah. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Our Eerie podcast. Many voices speaking truth to power. And unpacking difficult discussions. You can continue the conversation on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Our Eerie Series. This podcast is produced by John C. Lyons, Marty Norchuku, and Lydia Laith. Music produced by Light Shadow. We appreciate you for listening to the Our Eerie podcast. Until next time, take care of yourself. Keep fighting the good fight. Remember, you're awesome. Thanks for listening. listening.